السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله بلغ الرسالة وعد الأمانة ونصع الأمة فصلى الله وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين ثم أما بعد Welcome back brothers and sisters to uh, day two of our weekend seminar Treasures from Kitab al-Iman We're going to uh, we're going to start off with about 30 to 45 minutes in Q&A Okay, I think we have a question from the brother Assalamu alaikum what purpose was Sahih Muslim uh, written? I mean, who was it written for? I mean, I'm, I'm asking from the context that when, when the Aam person starts to commence his hadith studies, which books should he start with? I mean, you know, the, we understand or perhaps the Riyadh al-Sadiheen was written for the Aam. Um, is, it, is it hadith, uh, 40 hadith of Nawi? How, how, so in a nutshell, the question is how, what do the scholars say that a person should start his Hadith studies and what place does Sahih Muslim have? I mean, do we pick up? Does the arm person can he pick up Sahih Muslim and just start reading it? Bismillah alhamdulillah, wa nusalli wa nusallimu ala khairi khalqillah, Nabiina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala amma bad. Um, begin with uh, the issue of what a person should study uh, in the science of hadith, like every other science in Islam there is a methodology or there is a, a uh, let's say a progression that a person can study in order to become strong and firm in hadith and it's important to follow that progression and that progression begins with Kitab al-Arba'een al-Nawawiyyah by al-Imam al-Nawawi rahimahullah ta'ala the 40 hadith of al-Nawawi and then after that I personally recommend one of two things um, as an intermediate step perhaps something like Riyadh al-Salihin uh, because a person needs to know the virtue of the actions that they do in order to motivate them to, to do more but really what is important after that is for them to do a book of Fiqh al-Sunnah, something like Bulugh al-Maram by Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar rahimahullah ta'ala um, and after Bulugh al-Maram then the person can begin with the Kutub al-Sitta uh, starting with Al-Bukhari and Muslim and then Abu Dawood after that because of its virtue in uh, Fiqh and uh, then uh, Al-Tirmidhi and Al-Nasai and concluding with Sunan Numajah. In terms of whether a person can pick up a book of hadith, the answer to this is yes and no. Certainly Bukhari and Muslim from the point of authenticity you can pick up and, and read it. And there's no harm in doing so. Um, you can pick up Sahih Muslim when you, you know, a new Muslim, the first day they come into Islam, you can pick up Sahih Muslim and be confident that what you read is authentic. However, like anything you read, and this is true of Sahih Muslim and it's true of every book that you pick up in Islam, that you have to be a little bit careful. 
And I think that's true of everything in Islam. You have to be a little bit careful and you have to be cautious that if you're reading from a book without a teacher, and that does happen, you know, and there's nothing wrong with it, that you need to sometimes read from a book, you don't have a teacher, then at least be sure to make a note of anything that you're not, you don't fully understand or you're not fully sure of. Don't simply take it as you read it and just, you know, that's it. Read it. You don't understand something. Okay, I've made a note. I don't understand what this means. Or I don't understand how this fits in. In which case, you go back to the people of knowledge. Ask the people of the remembrance if you don't know. And they, inshallah, will direct you towards the correct understanding. Really, the problem with people picking up books and reading them is not a problem in the, in the action in the beginning. But it's the methodology of not being careful about what you read, not actually taking any care over things you don't understand, and just taking it as the first thing that comes into your mind. And the problem with that is a person can become very confused. But otherwise, Sahih Muslim, I mean, was Sahih Muslim written for the Ammat al-Nas? I don't think any of the books of Hadith, the major compilations of Hadith, were written for regular people, they were all written for the students of hadith um, but the regular people benefit from Sahih Muslim more than any other of the Qutb Sitta more than Al-Bukhari and more than the other Sunan because of its ease of reading it because of the good order and the easy layout of it and because of the careful choice of words that Al-Imam Muslim chose in his book and so it is the best or the easiest of the Qutb al-Sitta for the ordinary person to have access to. Uh, and the explanations of Sahih Muslim are easily available uh, online in terms of generally it's not difficult to find somebody who will explain Sahih Muslim to you as opposed to maybe a hadith in Ibn Majah where you're talking about authenticity, is it right, is it wrong? Then you're talking about the application of it. That's maybe a little more difficult as opposed to Sahih Muslim where you have so it's a very popular book, it's very common uh, and very, pop, very well explained by many, many people. Uh, so I think that there are sort of, um, uh, within reason, it's a very good book for a, for, a, for a regular Muslim to start with. And it's very beneficial to read. But even the Qur'an, and I, I think this even applies to the Qur'an, if you were to read it and not care about whether you understood the ayah or not, you would fall into misguidance. And Allah Azza mentions this in Surah Al-Imran, which we quoted yesterday, that there are ayat in the Qur'an that take people away from the path of Allah Azza because they don't apply them properly and they don't understand them properly. So I don't think even, as, you know, even in the issue of reading the Qur'an, you have to be careful that when you read something, if it doesn't sit with you, you don't understand it properly, ask somebody before you take an interpretation and you come and you know you stand up in front of everyone and you say that yeah this is true or that is true or you start telling people something and when you look at the base of it it comes from an ayah or a hadith that someone hasn't understood but they've taken it now you can read them but when you read them and you come across something and you think that just I don't I don't understand how that fits in it doesn't fit in with the principles of the sunnah that I've learned and the principles are vital you know you have these basic principles and we've talked about many of them yesterday. Principles of Aqidah, principles of the Sunnah. These principles are vital. Because you come across a hadith 
that seems to go against these principles, you can almost be certain that the hadith doesn't go against these principles at all, but that we just haven't understood it properly. Or the hadith is not authentic, or there is some other way of, you know, sort of understanding it. So you have these general principles in your mind. You have this general aqidah, this general belief in your mind. And you go through the book, and then when you come across something that appears to go against that, you ask about it. It might be that your belief is wrong, it might be that you misunderstood the belief. And it might be simply that this hadith has to be understood in the context of the other hadith in the sunnah. So I think that's probably a, um, the best answer that I can give uh, in terms of uh, where Sahih Muslim fits. But I would say Sahih Muslim is the most accessible books, book of any of the books of the sunnah uh, for, for the ordinary person. But in terms of beginning, begin with Al-Arba'in Al-Nawiyyah with the Ziyadat of Al-Hafidh ibn Rajab. Because Al-Imam Al-Nawiyyah mentioned 42 hadith. And Al-Hafidh ibn Rajab added 8 to make it 50. And the best explanation of Kitab Al-Arba'in is Jami' Al-Uloom Al-Uloom Wal-Hikam Al-Hafidh ibn Rajab Rahimahullah Ta'ala. This is the best book of explanation, Jami' Al-Uloom Wal-Hikam. And I believe it might have been, I'm almost sure it's been translated into English. Uh, the explanation of Ibn Rajab of the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawi it's, it's quite a thick and quite a detailed explanation and then Bulugh al-Maram and Bulugh al-Maram doesn't have an explanation in English that I know of but for those of you who speak Arabic Tawdih al-Ahkam something like that Tawdih al-Ahkam is a very good explanation of Bulugh al-Maram uh, and uh, there are some I mean I started explaining Bulugh al-Maram in uh, a video series but the masjid hadn't been recording it sort of regularly so it might not be complete and uh, that's about probably the best I can answer that question uh, the questioner asks we discussed about knowledge learning acting teaching and being patient in all of these we often circulate ayat of Quran and a hadith over social media without really acting on them are we violating the mentioned principles and if so how do we correct this Okay, in terms of uh, sharing ayat and ahadith, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, بَلِّغُ anni وَلَوْ آيَةٌ وَحَدِّثُ عَنْ بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلُ وَلَا حَرَجٌ The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said, inform people about me, even if it's only a single ayah. So there is no harm in sharing ayat and ahadith with two conditions that I can think of. The first is that the hadith should be authentic and you should be sure that it is authentic because subhanallah the sin of sharing weak ahadith and spreading weak ahadith is a very severe sin and we know the hadith Whoever lies against me deliberately, let him take his seat in hellfire. And the Prophet said, Whoever narrates a hadith about me that I did not say is one of the two liars, i.e. the liar that fabricated it or made it weak and the liar who spreads it to the other people. And in a narration is one of the liars. So, subhanAllah, it's a very serious thing for sharing weak ahadith. 
So be sure that the hadith is authentic. That is the first thing. And the second condition, which is for the ayah and the hadith, is that you understand it properly before you share it. Because perhaps you would share it and you would share it with, uh, without really understanding it and perhaps that would lead to people speaking about Allah without knowledge. And this is one of the major sins in Islam. In fact, some of the ulama considered it to be the worst sin in Islam. That you say something about Allah that you don't know. So it's about sharing something beneficial, knowing what it is that you're sharing. And I don't mean that you, you, know, you have like studied it in detail, but you, you, know, you understand it. You understand basically what it is. In terms of implementing it, then this is really about muhasabatun nafs. It's about taking yourself to account. It's about asking yourself that it's not about me just clicking share. It's about me asking myself what I, uh, where I stand with regard to this ayah or this hadith. And there's no harm in sharing something, even if you're not, if you're not doing it. At the end of the day, it's better for you to share it with other people than it is for you to not share it and not do it. But better than that is for you to share it and do it. And that is the best situation a person can be in, that they share the knowledge and they practice the knowledge. And uh, this is the kind of mentality that we want people to be in, that when they receive something, they want to share it with people. They also ask themselves, where am I with regard to this ayah, with regard to this hadith? And they share it and act upon it and they make the steps necessary to do so. However, I wouldn't say, you know, if you're not acting upon it, don't share it with people. That's the worst of the two situations. The worst of, of all of the situations is that you don't share it and don't act upon it. And the one in the middle is that you share it but you don't act upon it and this is bad enough and it's sinful. But it's less sinful than, the, than not sharing it and not, and not acting upon it. And then the one that you're aiming for is to share it and to act upon it. And that's a part of taking yourself to account and asking yourself where you stand. Okay, so there's a question over here? Yeah. Over there, okay. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, Sheikh, yesterday you uh, explained us about Iman, what it consists of, and how you can increase it. So basically, first you have to seek knowledge, uh, and you mentioned that you start with the local uh, Sheikhs uh, who you have access to. So my question is basically, uh, how do you identify these local uh, uh, scholars? Second thing is, uh, does Iman increase if you follow any sort of methodology, even if it's an innovative or different methodology, and if they claim that even they feel the sweetness of Iman? So first, how do you identify these uh, uh, scholars? Like, what are the pointers? Second thing is, even if you're not following, if you're following a different or innovative uh, methodology, do you still increase in Iman? Or do you have to actually go, uh, like, follow the right methodology to increase your Iman? Okay, I'll answer the second question first. There's no doubt that... Innovation is one of the major sins in Islam. In fact, it's one of the worst of the major sins. And if you said it is the worst of them after shirk, you would not be far from the truth. And therefore, it is from the major reasons to decrease your iman. And in fact, it may be a reason to remove your iman and your Islam completely if the innovation is the one that takes you outside of Islam. So at the end of the day, this is a major, major reason for a person's iman to decrease. And it's a major reason to block the increase of iman. And it's enough in this that Allah described the people of innovation as their deeds being scattered dust. And he, uh, in many of the ayat of the Qur'an, 
that the Sahaba took to be regarding innovation, Allah Azza wa made it clear that their deeds would count for nothing on the Day of Judgment and that they would be from the people of the Hellfire. And if their bid'ah took them outside of Islam, they will never get out of the Hellfire. And if their bid'ah did not take them out of Islam, then they will get out of the Hellfire, but they're deserving of the Hellfire. And if Allah Azza wa wills, He will forgive them, and if He wills, He will punish them. So there's a, it's a major reason to decrease your iman and a major reason to stop your iman from increasing. With regard to the, uh, the first question, how do you identify the local people that you study from? I think in this the answer is easy. You have to ask people with the, who you trust with the right local knowledge. I mean, uh, I can you know, honestly say for you, for when it comes to Dubai or when it comes to Emirates, I have no idea. Um, you know, in terms of who is here, who isn't, who is teaching, who isn't. But I'm sure locally there are brothers uh, from Kalima and elsewhere who you trust. You know that these brothers know the right people to go to and they know the right, uh, the right uh, sort of methodology. And it's very important because you can't, if you have a teacher with a poor methodology, that teacher can set you on the wrong path to begin with and all of your deeds can be lost and all of your deeds can be... Uh, can be, uh, you know, end up being lost in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you need the right person uh, and you need local knowledge for that. You know, I mean, even for me, if you ask me about different cities in the UK, I may not even know. You know, you ask someone about the, the local area that they know, look, I trust this individual, this individual is upon the sunnah, and they're not going to send me to somebody who is going away from the sunnah in this regard or that regard. And, you know, they're going to send me to the right person. And if I ask them, they're going to give me the information. And if you really don't have anyone locally, I mean, at the end of the day, everyone has access to the internet. And there are beneficial lectures that they can access there uh, as a start. And inshallah, they can supplement. Because locally, you will not have every science available to you. For example, you may not have an expert in hadith. There may be one, but you may not have one that is willing to teach you locally. In which case you might want to catch up on some of them on the internet and then you know, be able to sort of fill in the gaps. But the, the key to this is to ask local people who have the knowledge of the right people and, and where the scholars are teaching and where the, the students of knowledge are teaching. And you base yourself around you know, uh, those people. You base yourself around the people who know. And this comes back to the principle, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ ذِكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Ask the people of the remembrance if you don't know. And that's very important. And we used to, one of the, the, the most important things we used to do to our shiuch is to ask them who to study from. We say, Sheikh, look, I'm here in Medina. Who do you advise me to study from? We say, go and study from so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And that's something beneficial, inshallah. It's a good question to ask. Alhamdulillah, you know, there, there, is, uh, there are, as I understand it from the brothers, plenty of activities going on in Dubai and in the Emirates in general that people can benefit from, inshallah. But obviously it's a matter of, uh, of knowing where and when and making the time to be able to attend those courses and those lessons, inshallah. I think there's a question from the sister's side. Assalamu uh, alaikum. I just wanted to ask, especially with reference to the uh, internet, uh, now there's like a plethora of information available and there are a lot of uh, lectures, alhamdulillah, available. But at the same time, there's a lot of, um, I don't know how to say this, but, uh, you know, different, uh, some very prominent, uh, what, uh, who appear to be scholars to us, there are others refuting their, uh, you know, aqidah. So, um, 
uh, I, I don't know if, if I'm allowed to take names here, but how do we cross-check that? Because there's some people who are, you know, uh, uh, there seems to be consensus that they're on uh, Sunnah, but uh, at other times there's some, uh, you know, the, the refutations on them are very uh, technical. They're on, they're on Aqidah subjects that, we, we, uh, you know, to a lay person it's very hard to understand that, you know, X, X, Y is following a certain tafsir, which, you know, if somebody is doing a running tafsir and it's available freely, uh, you know, they'll say that the, uh, the, the tafsir they're following is, has some, uh, you know, issues in Aqidah. So, is there any way for a, you know, can, can you really go wrong if somebody is doing a basic tafsir and you're just following that? And if they have some, you know, very technical minor issues in their aqidah, can one really go wrong if one sort of follows them? Okay, uh, it's a very, very good question. And my answer to that was, is certainly you can go wrong. And I'll give you an example of this, that our Sheikh Al-Allama, Abdul Muhsin, Hamad Al-Badr, Hafizahullah Ta'ala, gave to us. In one of the books of Tafsir, it says this, the greatest blessing that Allah bestows upon his slave is to enter them into Jannah. Sheikh Abdul Muhsin said, what do you think about this? He said, Sheikh, MashaAllah, Tabarakallah. Sheikh said, all of you are following the Mu'tazila. Because the person who wrote this, wrote this to deny that you can't see Allah on the Day of Judgment. So you see how you can hear something that is all sweetness and, you know, and honey. And then in the end of it, it is there deliberately, the author wrote this statement, he was Mu'tazili, and he wrote this statement deliberately to deny that the believers will see Allah on the Day of Judgment. Deliberately. But look how it sounds. The greatest blessing, you know, when Allah enters you into Jannah, the greatest blessing, the Na'im of Jannah, there's no greater blessing than all of the blessings of Jannah. Except that the author means that you won't see Allah. Some of these people who are doing these tafasir, and one of the brothers, Aslahahullah, who is doing this tafsir, the tafsir that he is doing is full of mistakes. And even if it's a basic tafsir, it contains lies against Allah, it contains mistaken conceptions. This, I mean, the Quran is the most important thing that you can study. And it's very, very easy for a person to take you away from the path of Allah with very, very simple statements, but you don't have the understanding of them. And in terms of how we combat these things, then uh, at the end of the day, you have to ask the people of knowledge. You have to ask the people who you trust. And it's not for this kind of form, because it's not for me to like, sit here and list and say, right, this video, this video. But you know, for people maybe to contact me via email, or to contact other from the brothers that they, they, they know and they trust from Kalima and other places. That they contact them and say, okay, give me a, a, a set of videos or give me a set of books that I should read. Because at the end of the day, this is your religion. This knowledge is your religion, so look at who you take your religion from. And subhanAllah, there are so many people now who dress up in the clothes of the sunnah and they sit and they talk to people and subhanAllah they take people away from the path of Allah. And this is from the signs of Yawm Al-Qiyamah. As the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, Inna Allah la ya'akhud o la yakhbidu al-ilm intiza'an yantazi'uhu min al-nas walakin yakhbidu al-ilm biqabdu al-ulama hatta idha lam yatruk aliman ittakhadha al-nas ru'usan and in a riwaya ru'asa juhalan 
فسئلوا فافتوا بغير علم فضلوا واضلوا and this hadith is enough to terrify you from just randomly clicking through youtube listening to people the prophet sallallahu said indeed allah does not take away knowledge by snatching it from the hearts of the people but he takes it by causing the death of the ulama until there is no scholar left and the people take ignorant fools and in another riwayah, ignorant leaders, i.e. In, in the religion, in the religion of Islam, i.e. As, as their spiritual guides, as their mufti, as their, you know, their, their teacher. And then they ask them questions about Islam. And then they give them fatawa without knowledge. And they misguide themselves and misguide others. And this has become very common. And no doubt that the shaitan wants to dress this up sometimes in the guise of the sunnah and say to people that these people, you know, or, you know, they appear to be upon the sunnah and so on and so forth. But in reality, the people of knowledge know when they listen to them that they're not. And they know that the, the things that they're teaching are not, even if they, you know, they put themselves across that way. So a person should be very cautious about what they listen to and who they listen to and should be very, very cautious to... to be in touch with people that they trust who can guide them in the initial stages until they get enough knowledge for them to be able to, uh, to distinguish the right from wrong. But this is just how our Shaykh Abdul Muhsin explained to us that you can have a statement that sounds so innocent, but the de- deliberate intention of the author is to take you away from the path of Allah. And that's why it's so dangerous. And we ask Allah to keep us safe. Uh, the questioner asks... We spoke yesterday regarding the person who oppresses himself. I had a conversation with a person who had said that as long as he believes in the shahada, even though he doesn't pray regularly, at the end he will go to paradise. He says he would end up in the economy class and I would be in, in business class. And he's okay with the economy class. What should I say to this person? Inshallah, we're going to come to this ta'ala, in Kitab al-Iman when we talk about the prayer. And an Imam Muslim uh, brings the ahadith uh, as a clear evidence from the companions and from the Prophet that the one who abandons the prayer is not going to be in the economy class. Rather, he's, going to, he's not going to make the flight. And Allah Musta'an. And this is a mas'ala of khilaf anyway. I mean, I have to be honest with you. This is, not, this is a mas'ala that there is some disagreement on. But uh, what I would advise you against is becoming like the Jews who said, They said, don't worry, we're only going to go to hell for a short time. Allahumusta'an, the one who is happy with economy class, Allahumusta'an. You know, may Allah help that individual because that is a sad state of iman that you are content for Allah to punish you for a little while and I'll just get into the lowest place in Jannah. Oh, don't worry, he'll go to Jannah eventually. And you heard Abu Talib. Abu Talib, his heel is in the hellfire. And he will think that he is the worst of the people in punishment, Yawm al And he is the least of all of them. Nobody wants to go to Jahannam, not even for a minute, not even for a second. And yet, subhanAllah, there are some Muslims who are like, oh, don't worry, they, they've literally followed exactly the Yahud. Shibran, Shibran, handspan by handspan. They said that we're not going to be touched by the hellfire except for a number of days. Allah Am 
Say, do you have a promise from Allah that Allah is not going to punish you? Allah will not break His promise. Or do you say about Allah that which you do not know? And it's very sad that some Muslims have gone to this extent that they say that, don't worry, you know, I'm not doing anything in Islam, but, you know, inshallah, I'll get to Jannah. I mean, this is a, an attitude is wrong, even if the concept might be right. And we know the concept is clear that a person of Tawheed will not remain in the hellfire forever. As long as they remain a Muslim. And we said there's a disagreement over whether abandoning the prayer takes you outside of Islam. And Al-Imam Muslim, and indeed this is my opinion, I follow the same opinion as Imam Muslim. And the hadith are very clear that the one who abandons the prayer is not a Muslim. But in any case, even if they are a Muslim, the attitude of I'll just go to the hellfire for a little while and then I'll get into Jannah, this is the attitude of the Yahud. And it's not the attitude of the Muslims. And Allah Mustaan. طيب بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين ونصلي ونسلم على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين نبينا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وجعل ما نتعلمه حجة لنا لا علينا يا أرحم الراحمين أما بعد the obligation to love the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam more than one's family, son, father and all other people. And that of an absolute absence of iman regarding the one who does not love him with such love. This is another car crash of a translation. Yani, again, the translator here just doesn't understand Arabic. Mutlaqan, yani. there's, not even, there's not even an excuse for it. So take the word absolute and just cross it out. Because Allah Musta'an, yani, sometimes you wonder what the people were doing who translated these things, Allah Musta'an. Itlaq wa adam al-iman does not mean mutlaq adam al-iman. Itlaq adam al-iman means using the words and absence of iman regarding the one who does not love him with such love. Not an absolute absence of iman. In fact, Ahl sunnah agreed unanimously that there is not an absolute absence of iman for the one who does not love him with such love. Otherwise you would have made takfir of Umar and, and the Sahaba before they made this statement and they, and they uh, declared their love of the Prophet more than their own selves. Rather, I want to explain this. In fact, we'll read the hadith and then I will explain it to you. On the authority of Anas, the Messenger of Allah said, None of you believes, and in the hadith of, uh, uh, of Abdul Warith, no slave, be- sorry, no slave believes, and in the hadith of Abdul Warith, no person believes, until I am dearer to him than the members of his household, his wealth, and the whole of mankind. And on the authority of Anas, none of you is a believer until I am de- de- dearer to him than his child and his father, than his children, not his child. Waladi, he doesn't mean his child. Waladi, he means. Jins al-Awlad, yani his children, and his father, and the whole of mankind. The most important thing here is understanding that Iman has, or negating Iman has three types. There are three types of negating Iman. I saying somebody has not got Iman. There are three types or three levels of saying that a person does not have iman 
And this gets really confusing when they say it in Arabic. They say, mutlaqul, they say, al-iman, al-mutlaq, and mutlaqul iman. In any case, it's much easier in English than it is in Arabic. In Arabic, you get confused between the two, between al-iman, al-mutlaq, and mutlaqul iman. But there are three. At the most basic level, complete negation of iman. i.e. the person has no iman whatsoever and there is no iman at all not even like they say not even an atom's weight nothing and the second level is as the shiuch say nafi al-iman al-wajib so that a person does not have the obligatory required amount of Iman. As in their Iman is deficient, they have Iman, but their Iman is less than a Muslim should have. Yani it's, less than the, it's less than the obligatory level. And then the third is, is negating complete Iman. As in negating that somebody has everything you know, an absolute or a complete iman. On the first one, we're seeing the person has nothing left in the religion of Islam. There's not even an atom's weight of iman in them in any way. In the second, we're seeing they're sinful, but they're still Muslim. They are sinful, but they're still Muslim. As in, they have gone below the standard required of a Muslim, They've gone below the statement of the Bedouin that I will not add anything to this or decrease anything from this. And they've gone below the, the, the requirement of a Muslim, but they haven't left Islam. And then the third is to negate complete Iman. As in, you can't have perfect Iman if you have this particular sin or you have this particular disliked action. And that is not that you've gone below the minimum standard of a Muslim, but that you have gone, you are missing something that is needed to complete your Iman. And I'll give you an example of uh, each one. If we talk about the first one, which is that a person has no Iman at all, that they do an act of, of kufr, they do an act of disbelief, which takes them out of Islam. Something which they do, which takes them outside of Islam, and we say that this person does not believe. This person does not believe. I.e. the one who makes fun of the religion of Islam does not believe. The belief here is the base of Iman. And the person who makes fun of Allah and his messenger وسلم, has no Iman. And I'm not saying they are sinful, they have no Iman at all. And they are outside of Islam. Then you have the middle level, which is where we talk about sin. And the example of this is the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, by Allah he does not believe, by Allah he does not believe, by Allah he does not believe the one who harms his neighbor. Does it mean he's out of Islam? By Allah he does not believe and he's, he's kafir because he, because he parked his car in his neighbor's driveway? And that's it. The moment you parked your car in your neighbor's driveway, that's it, you're kafir. Outside of Islam. No, it is nafi. You're denying nafi al-iman al-wajib. And you're saying that the iman that is obligatory for you to have, you haven't reached that level. You 
fallen short of the obligatory level. While still being a Muslim, you've fallen short of the obligatory level. And then an example of the highest level is the hadith, They are those who do not seek ruqya. And that a person who uh, does those things that are mentioned in the hadith, they can't have perfect iman. They're still doing everything Allah commanded them to do. They're avoiding everything Allah forbid them from doing. They are a good believer in Islam. However, they can't reach a level of perfection while they don't have absolute trust in Allah. They can't reach perfection. So the basic level we're talking about Islam, the middle level we're talking about Iman, and the higher level we're talking about Ihsan. So there are a hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ says he does not believe, which indicates, you know, or, or which indicate different things, but in general, the statement does not believe, usually everything falls in the second category. I.e. that you do not believe as a Muslim should believe, but you're still a Muslim. And that is the majority of the, the, majority of the statements. La uh, yu'min. He doesn't believe. Now here you can see the mistake the translator made. The translator made this hadith in category number one. If you don't love the Prophet ﷺ more than yourself, you're not a Muslim at all. They said the absolute absence of Iman. Whereas what is meant here is Al-Iman Al-Wajib. That the person has gone below the obligatory level of Iman in Islam. Because it is obligatory in Islam for you to love the Prophet ﷺ more than your family, more than yourself, more than... Uh, your children, and more than all of the other people. And we know that Umar radiallahu anh, said, O Messenger of Allah, you are more beloved to me than everyone other than my own self. And the Prophet ﷺ said that you will not believe, i.e. you will not believe as a Muslim should believe until you love me more than you love yourself. And Umar replied that now you are more beloved to me even than my own self. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Al-Ana ya Umar. Now you have perfected your iman, O Umar. And so the matter is not a matter of disbelief, but the matter is going below the basic standard of, uh, of obeying Allah that is required from you. So the meaning here is, as the ulama of Islam say, Nafi al-Iman al-Kamil al-Wajib. So you're, go, you're saying that you can't have perfect iman and you are, you are less than the obligatory level of iman that every Muslim should have. And you've fallen below the obligatory level. So if you think of it as grades, you have a fail, which is the first category we talked about. You have a grade C, you know, like a pass grade, basically, you're, you know, you're passing. And you have a grade A start. You're, 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 you're complete. Sometimes we understand it in one way and sometimes we understand it in the other, but the majority of when it says you don't believe, it is talking about falling below grade C without failing. Without failing the exam, you know, you're talking about getting a D. So you're, you're below the, the, where you should be, you're below the standard, the average, the, the thing that you should be aiming for. You've gone below there, but you haven't failed the exam completely. 
And that is the meaning of this hadith. And this is why this, these issues of iman become complicated. But some of the ulama say there is a general principle that all of the ahadith that generally forbid iman or say there is no iman, all of them are in the second category. And Allah Azza wa knows best. That all of them are in the, or at least the, the overwhelming majority of them, if not all of them, are in the second category. I.e., they are saying that a person has not left Islam, but they have gone below the standard that a Muslim should be at. That is the muqtasid, the one who is basically not doing all of the voluntary deeds, but is doing what they should be doing. They've fallen below that standard to the zalimun li nafsi. So the one who does not love the Prophet ﷺ is oppressive to themselves as much as, as uh, you, or the one who prefers their family or prefers their children. They're oppressive to themselves, but they don't leave Islam unless it becomes extreme to the point where they, you know, they, they have no care and they don't obey him in anything, they turn away from him completely, that's different. But a person who, you know, they know that the Prophet ﷺ told them to do something and then they follow their family or they follow, you know, they, they struggle a little bit, then this person at the end of the day is falling short of the muqtasid, the, medium, the middle ground and is into the area of being zalimun li nafsi, an oppressor to themselves without leaving the religion of Islam. Chapter 17, the evidence that one of the attributes of faith is to love for your Muslim brother what you love for yourself. On the authority of Anas radiallahu anhu, the Prophet said, no one of you believes until he loves for his brother that which he loves for himself. And in number 73, it is narrated from Anas radiallahu anhu uh, that the Prophet said, by him whose hand my soul is in, no slave of Allah truly believes until he loves for his neighbor or, his prophet, or the Prophet said for his brother what he loves for himself. In this particular hadith, there's no doubt that the, this contains an, a very important lesson for all of us. And that is that as a part of Islam, we have to have that love for other people or to love for other people what we would love for ourselves. And in this, there are multiple levels. And in fact, this hadith contains multiple uh, levels of negating iman. Because there are multiple parts to this. There is an obligatory part and there is a recommended part. So we're talking about the second part, the second level that we talked about, and the third. We're not talking about leaving Islam, but we're talking about you can fall short of the obligatory and you know you can fall short in that which is recommended for you. The minimum that is recommended or the minimum that is required from every Muslim with regard to the love for their brother, what they love for themselves, is that they don't have uh, jealousy of their brother, they don't have uh, hatred of their brother, they don't have any enmity towards them, they don't have uh, they don't cause them any harm. Those are the sort of things that we're talking about on the, um, on the uh, obligatory level. On the recommended level, for you to give up something that is your right for the sake of your brother. And that is something which is uh, recommended. And it's like what Allah Azza wa mentioned regarding the uh, companions of the Prophet وسلم, They give up things that are their own right for their brothers. And that is a higher level of Iman. And that's not necessarily something that's an obligation, 
but there's no doubt that that is a higher level of Iman. So in this we have two levels of Iman. We have the obligatory level of Iman, that you don't have jealousy towards your brother, you don't have hatred towards your brother, you don't seek evil for your brother, you don't try to take away the blessings that Allah has given your brother. That is the obligatory level. And then you have the recommended level that you give up something that is yours for the sake of your brother, or you give up something that is your right for the sake of your brother. And the example of this is the example of the Sahaba. And if you want a specific example, the example of Aisha, radiallahu anha, with regard to the burial of Umar. Because Aisha, radiallahu anha, she had assigned or she had taken a place to be buried next to her husband and her father, her husband sallallahu alayhi wa ala wa sahbihi wa sallam and her father radiallahu anhu Allah, that she had taken a place to be buried next to the two of them. And this was in her apartment, it was her land. The land belonged to her and of course the Prophet sallallahu was buried there, her father Abu Bakr was buried there and she had simply left the third grave for herself. And it was her apartment, so this was her right. When Umar died, he sent, or when he was dying, he sent Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma to Aisha radiallahu anha to ask Aisha about whether or permission for Umar to be buried next to his two companions. And Aisha said, today I have preferred Umar over myself. Because this was the right of Aisha to be buried there. But she gave up that right recognizing that Umar radiallahu anhu was more deserving of it than she was and that she wanted to have that reward of giving up something for the sake of somebody else. That is of a higher level. So we have an obligatory level and we have a recommended level. The obligatory level is things like avoiding jealousy, avoiding hatred, avoiding harm. The Muslim is the one who the Muslims are safe from his tongue and his hands and all of these other things that we've talked about. The higher level is about giving up something that is your right for your brother because you love for your brother what you would love for yourself. And that is of a higher level than the obligatory and it's something that we should all strive towards and Allah Azzawajal knows best. Clarification on the prohibition of annoying one's neighbor. It was narrated on the authority of Abu Hurairah He will not enter paradise. The one whose neighbor is not secure from his wrongful conduct. Again, all of these are in Kitab al-Iman. Ya'ikwani, for a reason. And that is because they are there to clarify the belief of Ahlul Sunnah with regard to the sins and with regard to statements like they will not enter paradise. What does it mean he will not enter paradise? Again, the person who doesn't know their belief properly, what do they say? Khalas, he's kafir. He's going to go to hellfire. The one whose neighbor is not secure, that's it. You park in your neighbor's driveway, you'll never go to Jannah. And this is the danger of taking that hadith without the proper understanding. That's it. You didn't return the sugar your neighbor lent you. That's it. Jahannam. Khalidina fiha. No, it doesn't work like that. The meaning of he will not enter paradise is dukhulan awwaliyan. He will not enter paradise with the first group of people. I.e. without any punishment or any, uh, any uh, reckoning. He will not enter, the pa- enter paradise with the, first, with the first group of people. With the first group of people. I.e. without any reckoning or any punishment or any account. Because at the end of the day, this is a major sin. And any sin 
which contains things like he will not enter paradise or the curse of Allah will be upon him or the anger of Allah will be upon him or he does not believe all of these sins are major sins in Islam so this is a major sin the one who is neighbor is not safe from his wrongful conduct is a major sin in Islam it's a major sin in Islam but the meaning of not enter paradise here is he will not enter paradise with or at the, in, with the initial group or with the first uh, group or he will not enter paradise immediately without Allah Azza wa Jal taking him to account for that major sin. However, even in this, there has to be a clause. And that is that the belief of Ahl Sunnah with regard to the major sins and forgiveness is that if Allah wills, he will forgive him without any punishment. And if Allah wills, he will punish him so I want these three points to write down. The first one, if Allah wills, He will forgive him, and if Allah wills, He will punish him. If Allah wills, He will forgive him, and if Allah wills, He will punish him. The second point is, He deserves to be punished. Because the statement of Allah and the statement of the Prophet indicates that this person is deserving of punishment. And the third point is that there will be people who will be punished. And that summarizes the belief of Ahl Sunnah with regard to the major sins. If Allah wills, He will forgive them, and if Allah wills, He will punish them. That's the first point. The second point, they're deserving of punishment. And the third point uh, is that. The, uh, so they're deserving of punishment and uh, the third point that there will be people who will be punished and the fourth point we should add to this as well is that the people of Tawheed will not remain in the hellfire forever and that is basically the belief of Ahl Sunnah with regard to the major sins any major sin, killing, drinking alcohol, you know, you name it, whatever sin it is, from the major sins that do not take you outside of Islam, you have those points. If Allah wills, He will forgive. And make a note next to all of these that I'm talking about the one that does not make tawbah. Because as for the one who makes tawbah, his sin is forgiven anyway and none of this applies to him. So as for the one who makes tawbah from harming his neighbor, there is no sin for him in the first place. But we're talking about someone who is drinking alcohol and he dies drinking alcohol. If Allah wills, Allah Azza wa Jal will forgive him. Completely. Maybe he will forgive him because of some of the good deeds he did. Maybe he will forgive him because of a hardship that he endured maybe he will forgive him because of what he knows to be in his heart maybe he will forgive him from his infinite mercy and an example of this is a man who drank alcohol repeatedly among the companions and he was, the punishment was carried out and after so many times he had come when the companions were carrying out the punishment for the, you know, after so many times they began to curse him 
And the Prophet ﷺ forbade them from doing so and said, For indeed he loves Allah and his messenger. This is a man who is a drunkard. You know, he's been punished for drinking alcohol several times. And the Prophet ﷺ said he loves Allah and his messenger. That's because at the end of the day, Allah ﷺ knows what is, in, you know, what is the, the situation of the people. And people have sins. If the person dies without making tawbah, Allah can forgive them. And if Allah wills, He will punish them. However, they are deserving of being punished. We have to say that. Because Allah has set a punishment for the major sins and they're deserving of punishment. And we have to say some people will be punished. Because some people came along and said, yeah, actually, all of this thing about punishment is just there to make you scared. Actually, Allah is not going to punish anybody. Everyone is going to go to Jannah. No, in reality, no. Allah has promised, and it's incorrect to say that Allah would promise a punishment and then not carry out the punishment on anybody. Because that would be a lie. Allah said, so-and-so will go to the hellfire, and then nobody goes to the hellfire? No, that would be a lie. Somebody has to go. People have to go. And then the belief after that, that... Uh, so, then you have the belief... Uh, after that, that the person of Tawheed will not remain in the hellfire forever. And this is something which is uh, well established by Ahlul Sunnah, that the people of Tawheed will not, enter, will not remain in the hellfire forever. However, when I say the people of Tawheed, I mean they have to still be Muslim. People sometimes think people of Tawheed means anyone who says La ilaha illallah, they have to still be Muslim. So if they have something that took them outside of Islam, then the fact that they said La ilaha illallah will not benefit them. They have to still be a Muslim. And that is a very important point that people maybe don't get. They say, okay, but you know this person who doesn't pray, he says La ilaha illallah. Okay, he says La ilaha illallah, but according to the opinion that prayer take, leaving the prayer takes you outside of Islam, then that La ilaha illallah doesn't benefit. And that's according to that opinion. And we mentioned it's a disagreement. But the point here is that the people of Tawheed will not remain in the hellfire forever as long as they have the conditions of Islam remaining within them and not that just simply they said La ilaha illallah. And inshallah this explains the context of this hadith with regard to the neighbor that they will not enter paradise immediately. If Allah wishes, He will forgive them completely and they will enter paradise without any account and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive them. However, there is another point to this in chapter 18 and that is that Allah has promised not to overlook the oppression that you do to other people. Allah has promised not to overlook the oppression that you do to other people. So if your neighbor hasn't forgiven you for it, then for sure this person will not enter paradise with the first group and there's no way, that that, there's no way around that. Allah has to stop him and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to take him to account for what he did because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, now it becomes the right of the neighbor and it becomes the right of Allah. If it was the right of Allah, Allah will, you know, can let it go. But at the end of the day, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised that he will not allow injustice to go unpunished. So if the person dies and the neighbor has not forgiven them and they die having oppressed their neighbor, they will not enter paradise with the first group until Allah takes them to account and either their neighbor forgives them or their neighbor 
uh, takes some of their good deeds or gives them some of their bad deeds. So this is perhaps another way of uh, clarifying this hadith. I'm trying to clarify everything in one place because we're going to cover a number of ahadith now that relate to the same issue, the issue of the major sins. And so we have a principle here. We have four clear points. And then we have on this the issue of when you harm another person, if the neighbor has forgiven them, if Allah has inspired the neighbor to, you know, to forgive that person during their lifetime, then inshallah the person can enter paradise with the, with the first group. If Allah wills to forgive them for that. As for if the neighbor has not overlooked and not forgiven, then the person has to be taken to account one way or the other. Either Allah will inspire the neighbor to forgive them, or either Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will allow the neighbor to take from their good deeds or to give them their bad deeds. Because Allah will not allow oppression that is the right of another human being to be left. Or even the animals, Allah will not allow the oppression that is done to them to be left and to be, and to be abandoned. Rather, every single oppression that is done has to be taken to account. That is done to, to between the creation. As for the oppression between you and the creator, you oppressing yourself and you uh, disobeying Allah, then Allah is ghafoor and rahim. And there's no doubt that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will overlook. But as regards the, the, uh, the oppression that you do to other people, this is less safe because now you are not at the mercy of Allah. You are at the mercy of the person that you oppressed. And that is why oppression to other people is so severe. Chapter 19, encouragement to honor one's neighbor and guest and the obligation to remain silent unless someone has something good to say and the fact that all of this is a part of Iman. It's reported on the authority of Abu Hurairah that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, He who believes in Allah in the last day should either say good words or be silent. And he who believes in Allah in the last day should treat his neighbor with kindness. And he who believes in Allah in the last day should show hospitality to his guest. And it's reported on the authority of Abu Hurairah that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, He who believes in the last day does not harm his neighbor. And he who believes in Allah in the last day shows hospitality to his guest. And he who believes in the last day speaks good or remains silent. And another hadith similar to the one above by Abu Hussain is also reported by Abu Hurairah with the exception of the words he should do good to the neighbor. I think, again, because we're trying to get through a number of hadith, these hadith are fairly self-explanatory. However, I just want to relate them to Kitab al-Iman. The key here is the, the word he who believes in Allah in the last day. This is an evidence that these actions are a part of your iman. And that if you want to have complete iman, and you want to have at least the iman that every believer should have, then you need to have these, these three things. You need to be a person who speaks good or stays silent, a person who treats his neighbor well, and a person who shows hospitality to his guest. Other than that, I think the ahadith are fairly self-explanatory for now and we have a lot to get through. Chapter 20, clarifying that forbidding evil is a part of iman and that iman increases and decreases. Enjoining what is good and forbidding what is evil is obligatory. It's narrated on the authority of Tariq ibn Shihab that it was Marwan who initiated the practice of delivering the khutbah before the prayer on the Eid day. A man stood up and said, the prayer should precede the khutbah. Marwan remarked, this practice has been done away with. Upon this, Abu Sa'id said, this man has performed his duty laid on him. 
I heard the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam say Whoever sees something uh, evil Should change it with his hand And if he does not have the strength He should change it with his tongue And if he is not able He should, change, he should hate it in his heart And that is the least of faith couple of issues to begin with before we get into this hadith and this hadith needs a little bit of explaining uh, a couple of issues that we need to get uh, we need to get into inshallah the first is uh, again a clarification that uh, iman is of different levels because you have here the word the least of faith so that shows you that iman is of different levels as an Imam al we said clarification that Iman increases and decreases because within here it is mentioned uh, the different levels of Iman indicating that if you were to do one of them your Iman would go up uh, and if you were not to do one of them your Iman would go down. And then a clarification that actions are a part of Iman because changing with the hand and the tongue are both actions and hating in the heart is an action of the heart. So this is a clarification that actions are a part of Iman. And as Imam Nawawi rahimahullah ta'ala said, then enjoining what is good and forbidding what is evil is obligatory. However, we need to spend a little bit of time to understand this because this hadith causes a confusion for a number of people and it causes people to do things that are very un-Islamic without realizing what they are doing is un-Islamic. The scholars of Islam often explain this hadith in the following way. And I'll start by explaining it that way and then maybe we can expand from there. The first thing is that each of those three levels of forbidding evil is the job of a particular group of people. As for the first, it is the job of the waliul amr the first part of the hadith, changing with the hand, this is the job of the wali al-amr. Because it's the sultan who has the authority to change with the hand. So the policeman, the, you know, the ruler, etc., they are the ones who have the ability to change an evil with their hands. If you go to a place which is, there is some evil, and you walk into some place, some you know, place in Dubai, and you just start removing the evil with your hands, most likely you're going to end up getting arrested. It's not your job. This is the job of the waliul amr. Your job is to call the police, and the police come, and the police remove that evil. Because this is their job, to remove the evil with the hand. As for the second group, they are the scholars. Because if you stand up to somebody, and you say to somebody that, I want to, you know, you shouldn't do this and this is haram and all of the rest. And then they say to you, why? And you say, I don't know. Because you don't have the evidence. And this is the group of the scholars. The third category is the responsibility of, or is the, what is left for the ordinary people. Having said that, and this is the explanation most of the scholars of, of, of Islam give, that is there to give you an understanding and it's not an absolute rule. And I'll explain why. We said that the changing of the hand is the responsibility of the wali al-amr. That's true in, in the whole society. But you yourself may have the ability to change something with your hand even though you don't have any authority in the land. 
as an example, if your child is doing something, you have a degree of authority over your child to be able to physically stop them from doing it. Maybe your best friend is doing something. You are physically able to physically grab him by the hand and stop him from doing it. So, in general, here, the meaning of the wali al-amr is not that they, you know, there's, if you're not a policeman, you can't stop an evil with your hand. But it's to give people the understanding that the overwhelming majority of fitting, forbidding the evil with the hand is to be done by the authorities. They are the ones who have the ability. However, every now and again, you may be in a circumstance where you genuinely do have the ability. For example, you're in your own home and somebody does something, you're able to physically change it with your hand. Without breaking the law, you're able to physically change something with your hand. You know something in your own family, or your very close friend does something, and you're able to physically restrain him from doing it, because this is something that is within your ability. However, in the overwhelming majority of cases for the, for, for the society in, as a whole, it's the authorities who have the ability to do the first one. Likewise, the second one, even though it is the remit of the scholars, there is no doubt that occasionally you may know the evidence. You may have the ability. It may be somebody who has a lot of respect for you. And you know that if you advise them and if you forbid the evil with your tongue, you're able to do so. So at the end of the day, you have the ability to do that. And this is why it's not, we don't say that if you're not a student of knowledge or you're not a scholar, then you can't forbid evil with your tongue. Again, it depends on your ability. So in general, it's going to be the scholars who are forbidding the evil with their tongues. Generally. Because they are the ones who have the knowledge, they are the ones who have the ability to do so. However, every now and again, you find yourself in a situation where you are able to do so. And there's no harm in you doing that. So when you read this explanation, and it's a very common explanation of, this, uh, of the, uh, the pious predecessors that they say that the first one is the ruler, and the second one is the scholar, and the third one is the ordinary people, the meaning of this is not absolute. The meaning of this is relative. In general, it is the ruler. In general, it's the scholar. In general, it's the ordinary person. But there may be a time when... Uh, the last one applies to the scholar because the scholar doesn't have the evidence or the ruler is in the face of an enemy that is stronger than him and so he's not able to do anything but hate it in his heart he doesn't have the ability to change it with his hand because he's in the face of an enemy that is greater than him so while we say that the first one is the ruler the second is the scholar and the third is the ordinary person at the same time there are times when the ruler may fit into the third category where the scholar may fit into the third category and where the ordinary person may fit into the first but that is the exception rather than the rule. Because in general, the ruler has the ability to stop an evil going on. But it may be a policeman is driving past and the group that is doing the evil is too big. And so the policeman is not able to actually stop the evil without asking for more help. And the help is not available at the time. So the policeman is not able to stop the evil from happening. And so there, is time, there are times when different one people may fit into different categories. And the general concept is ability. The second thing that we need to mention about this hadith, and it is probably the most important, is that ordering good and forbidding evil must include uh, bearing in mind or taking into account the consequences of your actions. Because Islam came to establish good or increase it and to remove evil or decrease it. And one of the saddest things is that we have people who order good and forbid evil and they bring an evil far, far worse than the evil that they 
sought to remove. And I'll give you an example of this. And this is an example that happened in one of the Muslim countries. And I think it was Algeria, but in the time of the Troubles. There was uh, an, an area, or there was a, um, an, uh, an area of Muslims. And in this area of Muslims, there was a, a shop that sold uh, inappropriate material, sold sort of adult material and pornographic material. This was an area where many of the Muslims were going. And some of the young brothers basically had this idea that they would smash the shop in and burn it down. They said, we're able to do so. We're a group, we're a big group of young guys. There's nobody here. You know, this is destroying the, the Muslims. People are going to this shop day and night. And so they came and they burnt it down. As a result of their action, their local masjid was closed. That was the first thing. Their local masjid was shut down. The second thing that happened is that the, uh, because they had like the insurance, etc., they paid the, the, the sort of authorities paid for the shop to be completely rebuilt. And so what happened in the end? In the end, Muslims were arrested, the masjid was closed, and the shop remained open. And this is a perfect example of people forbidding an evil and bringing a much greater evil in its place. And this is what some of the shiuch in that area, they mentioned this story, and it's a reliable story, inshallah. They mentioned this story and they said this is an example of forbidding evil that brings a greater evil. So somebody sees an evil in the society. And we're not living in, in Jannah, and we're not living in the time of the Sahaba. There are evils in our society. And they try to stop that evil, and they bring an evil that is a hundred times worse. And you only have to see that in some places in the world, Islam is under extreme pressure. It's not like here where you can give a talk about Islam. In some places you can't give a talk about Islam at all. Why? Because the Muslims tried to forbid an evil and brought a worse evil in its place. Or they tried to establish a good and they brought about an evil instead. And so Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah ta'ala, he mentions with regard to this hadith, and indeed Ibn al-Qayyim mentions as well with regard to this hadith, that the situation of ordering the good and forbidding the evil basically has a number of different outcomes. Number one, that you believe firmly that your action will lead to an improvement, a reduction of the evil or an increase of the good. So number one is that you, you have a very firm belief that your action will lead to an improvement. In this case, it's an obligation. So you have a firm belief, not just a pie-in-the-sky dream, but you have, a, you, know, you have a good idea that your action is going to lead to an improvement. In which case, it's an obligation for you to do it, if you're able to do so. I.e., the, the, uh, the uh, person believes, if I speak to this brother, he's going to, inshallah, change. It's going to lead to an improvement. The second one is that you believe that on balance of probability, it's going to lead to things getting worse. In which case, it's haram for you to forbid that evil. It's not disliked, it's haram for you to forbid that evil. So you believe that things are going to get worse. You're going to forbid an evil, but it's going to lead to a worse outcome than the evil itself. In which case, it's haram for you to forbid that evil. 
And the third situation is that you believe that the issue, the evil will stay, will stay the same or the situation will be very similar. So you're not able to see whether it will improve or it will go down. You think it's, you know, you're, you're replacing one thing for another. You know, one evil for another or one good for another and it's pretty similar. And in this it becomes a matter of ijtihad. It becomes a matter of uh, you determining, you know, that there is a balance and you actually making a decision about which one you're going to do. It's neither obligatory nor is it haram. It becomes a matter of ijtihad. It becomes a matter of your best effort to do what you think is best. So there are three, those three circumstances. Either you think things are going to get better, or you think things are going to get worse, or you think things are going to stay the same. If you think things are going to get better, it's an obligation. If you think things are going to get worse, it's haram. And if you think things are going to stay the same, it becomes a matter of ijtihad, and you have to make a decision about whether you think you should do it or not. And that's all for those people who have the ability. As for the one who doesn't have the ability, you know, you're, you're walking down the street and you see someone drinking alcohol, you're not a police officer, you can't do anything about it. You know, if you think you, 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 know, you haven't been given that authority, what the best you can do is you can go to somebody who has that authority and ask them to deal with the situation. You can't deal with it because at the end of the day you haven't been given that authority. Unless there are rules in different countries, they have different laws where people can get involved or people can, are allowed to do things, that's acceptable. But as long as the rule is that you can't, then you can't. And that's what you mean by you have to hate it in your heart. You have no choice other than that. And again, it depends on what you see as being the outcome. And an, another example of this, on a positive side, or on a, an example of a of the right way of dealing with things. Uh, it's mentioned that when the Tatar people uh, overcame the Muslims, they fought against the Muslims, at the time of Shaykh Islam ibn Taymiyyah, they were drinking alcohol. Some of the students of Ibn Taymiyyah said, Oh Shaykh, shall we not go and forbid them from drinking the alcohol? Because this is a time when, you know, you, it's not like there is, it is now. You know, you have like people will just go and deal with the problem. You know, he says, shall we not go and deal with them? And Ibn Taymiyyah said something to the effect of, don't go because their alcohol is preventing them from killing the Muslims. And you see how he's looking at the positive and negative consequences. If you get them sober, they're just going to start killing the Muslims again. Leave them be. It's better that you leave them like that than it is for you forbid it and bring a worse evil about. Because these were people who had been killing the Muslims at that time. And they had stopped because they'd got so drunk they'd stopped killing them. And so instead of stopping them from it, they left them. And just walked past. Leave them be because it's preventing them from killing the Muslims. And killing the Muslims is a worse evil than them drinking the alcohol. So you see, subhanAllah, how this issue is. That so many people, they get a bit of hamas, they get a bit of excitement... And off they go, you know. And off they go, forbidding the evil left, right and center. And they bring about so much evil in their society. And in some places they may get, them, they may get problems for the Muslims. Or the masajid closed. Or the du'at get in trouble. Or people can no longer give da'wah because people want to forbid an evil which in the grand scheme of things is tiny compared to what the people are doing. 
And that is why when it comes to ordering good and forbidding evil, you have to have a bit of understanding, you have to have a bit of fiqh, you have to be able to judge positive and negative outcomes, consequences of what you're doing, and you have to have the ability to do so. I think that is the most important, or those are the most important points regarding these, uh, this particular hadith. But do please bear in mind how the hadith relates to Kitab al-Iman, in terms of the proof that Iman goes up and down, the proof that Iman is of different levels, the proof that Iman includes action, all of these things are within Kitab al-Iman. Chapter 21, people excel over one another in Iman and the superiority of the people of Yemen in Iman. It is narrated on the authority of Ibn Mas'ud that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, pointed towards Yemen with his hand and said, Indeed, Iman is towards this side, and harshness and callousness of the hearts is found among the rude owners of the camels who drive them behind their tails to where emerged the two horns of Shaytan, and they are the tribes of Rabi'ah and Mudar. And it is narrated on the authority of Abu Hurairah that the Prophet وسلم, said, they have, come to the, they have come the people of Yemen. They are tender of hearts. Iman is that of the, Yemeni, of the Yemenites. And the understanding of faith is that of the Yemenites. And the sagacity is that of the Yemenites. And Abu Hurairah reported the same hadith which is transmitted to us by another chain of narrators. Again, I think we've explained yesterday the issue of different countries. That these hadith that relate to different countries are not absolute. They do not stand in evidence that everyone born in Yemen is a person of very high Iman and everyone born outside of Yemen is not a person of Iman and everyone who drives camels into the, you know, towards the uh, sunrise is uh, a person of a lack of Iman. This is, this is something that we don't understand from these ahadith. The purpose of this hadith in Kitab al-Iman in Sahih Muslim is to prove that some people have higher Iman than others to prove that some people have higher iman than others. And as for these understanding of places, then they, they, they have no understanding for us that we can hold on to. Because in reality, there's no doubt that there are people of good born in every place and people of evil born in every place. And at the end of the day, this is a virtue of the people of Yemen and it's authentic. However, that virtue is true for those people in Yemen who have this description. As for those people in Yemen who don't have this description, like those people who cause the fasad and the, the corruption on the earth, then they don't apply to this hadith, and we don't apply this hadith to them. For example, if a non-Muslim lived there, you know, the Yemeni, Yemeni Jews, Yemeni Christians, we don't apply this hadith to them and say, you're a person of Iman because you were born in Yemen. Rather, this hadith is a virtue of the people of Yemen. And there are virtues of many. There are virtues of the people of Medina, virtues of the people of Sham, virtues of the people of Yemen, virtues of many, uh, many uh, places and many areas have virtues mentioned in the Sunnah. However, those virtues are true of those people who their characteristics apply to. So if you find a brother or a sister from Yemen who they are a person of Iman and a person of the Sunnah, then they are the people who are deserving of this virtue. As for saying that everyone born in Yemen is a person of Iman, then this is not the meaning of the hadith. And it's clear because Yemen was a place of Ahl Kitab. 
And at the time of this hadith, the majority of the people in Yemen were Ahl Kitab. So this hadith, you have to understand it in the right way. I like the hadith of Najd and the hadith of Sham and the hadith of Egypt and the hadith of many, many ahadith that refer to places all over the world. Those ahadith do not refer absolutely that everybody born in that country, as, as is the virtue of Quraysh. You hear the virtue of Quraysh over the other Arabs. But at the end of the day, who is Abu Lahab if he is not from Quraysh? And what did Allah Azza wa Jal say about Abu Lahab? Tabbat yada Abi Lahabin watab. Ma aghana anhu maluhu wa ma kasab. So at the end of the day, Abu Lahab, who is from not just from Quraysh, he's from Bani Hashim. Not just from Bani Hashim, he is from the direct and closest family to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he is in a dark al-asfal min al-nar, the lowest place in the hellfire. So this shows you that these ahadith of fada'il, of the virtues of certain places and areas, they are virtues for the people for whom these descriptions are true. And as for the tribes of Rabi'a and uh, Mudar, I'm not an expert on Arab tribes, but these were two tribes who uh, fought uh, against the Muslims for a very long time. But as is the case in most of these cases, there were Muslims who emerged from, I believe, from the tribe of Rabi'a, and Allah knows best, that there were Muslims who emerged from them. And so, as there may be a hadith that talk negatively about certain areas, certain tribes, certain people, they're not absolute. They're a generalization. And likewise, the people who are from Quraysh, who follow the Sunnah, have the virtue of Quraysh. The people from Yemen who follow the Sunnah have the virtue of the people of Yemen. The people from Sham who follow the Sunnah, they have the virtue of the people of Sham. As for those who follow something different, the fact that they are born there doesn't make any difference at all. And I think that is clear because it's just simple common sense. And there's no way to apply these ahadith except that way. Because whichever way you look at it, it's something that is, uh, it's something that is, uh, uh, you can't apply it any other way. Uh, that was hadith number 80. I'll read you what one of the shiukh said regarding this uh, hadith of Ahl al-Yaman. He said, Al-Yaman wa Ahl al-Yaman al-Haqiqa li'anna qawlahu sallallahu alayhi wa sallam jaa Ahl al-Yaman wa innama jaa hina idhin ghayru al-ansar. So what he's saying here is he says that the reality of this is the Prophet sallallahu is referring to the people of Yemen who came to him. And not any other people of Yemen. He's referring to the people of Yemen who came to him at that time. And he said this wording of the hadith clearly shows that he's referring to the people in front of him. Nor is he referring to all of the people of Yemen. Nor is he referring to all of the people of Yemen in every single time and every single place. Because the wording of the hadith does not necessarily or does not indicate this. Uh, and then he says, وَهَذَا هُوَ الْحَقَّ مَقَالَ ابْنُ الصَّلَاحِ And this is the truth as Ibn al-Salah said. So Ibn al-Salah when he explained this hadith said the same thing. He said that this does not refer to all of the people of Yemen in all times, but it refers to the people who were present at that time. I am going to add to this and say it refers to the people who were present at that time and all those who have the same characteristics from them, from the people of the Sunnah in Yemen and the people of the Sunnah in Sham and so on and so forth. They have the virtue and the people of the Sunnah from Quraysh and the people of the Sunnah from the other areas that the Prophet ﷺ praised. They have the virtue of that without a shadow of a doubt. 
So it refers to the people who were there at the time. So he says here, uh, the meaning of this are those who were present among them at that time, not all of the people of Yemen at every time, because the wording of the hadith does not indicate this, and this is the truth as Ibn al-Salah said. Chapter 22. Clarifying that no one will enter paradise but the believers, and that loving the believers is a part of Iman, and spreading the salam is a main means of attaining Iman. Abu Hurairah reported that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, You shall not enter paradise as long as you do not believe, and you will not believe as long as you do not love one another. Shall I not direct you to a thing which if you do it will foster love among you? Give uh, or spread out the salam. And Zuhair ibn Harb said that Jarir reported on the, on the authority of Al-A'mash with a chain of narrators that the Messenger of Allah said, by whose hand my soul is in, you will not enter paradise until you believe. And the rest of the hadith is the same as narrated by Abu Muawiyah and not Abdi Muawiyah, it should be Abu Muawiyah. Abu Muawiyah and Waqiyah. You will not enter paradise until you believe. This is an evidence that the only people who will enter Jannah are the people of Iman. And the people of Iman, they are those at each time in history who believed in Allah Azza wa Jal and His messengers and His scripture and the last day and the angels and so on and so forth. They believed in their prophet and they believed in their Iman. So the people at the time of Musa who believed will enter into paradise. And the people at the time of Isa, who believed, السلام, will enter into paradise. And the people at the time of Muhammad, وسلم, and those who came after him, who believed, they are the only ones who will enter into paradise. As for those who turn away and disbelieve, they will be the people of the hellfire. And this is mentioned in so many ayat of the Quran. That the one who turns away will be from the people of the hellfire. Regardless of how good of a person they are to others, if they did not have that belief in Allah, they will not be from the people of paradise. And you will not believe until you love one another. What did we say? We've already dealt with this uh, extensively, the meaning of you will not believe, i.e. you will not have the required level of belief that a Muslim should have, not that you're not a Muslim, until you love one another. Shall I not tell you something which if you do will, will foster love among you, spread the salam, give out the salam. And I think that is fairly self-explanatory, but the key here is that when it says you will not believe, i.e. you will not believe at the required standard of a Muslim, not that you will not be a Muslim if you don't love one another. Chapter number 23. Clarifying that the religion is sincerity. It's narrated on the authority of Tamim al-Dari radiallahu I have to admit that in all honesty it is difficult to translate because I personally wouldn't translate the word, the word al-Nasiha really um, al-Nasiha it means different things in different cases but in any case the meaning of this should be the religion is sincerity, sincere advice whatever you want to call it the religion is al-Nasiha not the not ad-deen is a name of sincerity. And, where, and I don't know where well-wishing came from. We said 
to whom or for whom he said to Allah, his book, his messengers, for the leaders and the general Muslims. And then there are some other hadith that are the same. This hadith contains the importance of al-nasiha, the importance of sincerity and the importance of sincere advice. And al-nasiha is a very difficult word to translate in this context. And the reason why is it means something different for every one who is mentioned in the hadith. So your nasiha towards Allah is not the same as your nasiha towards the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And your nasiha towards the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam is not the same as your nasiha towards the general Muslims or the leaders of the Muslims. And an nasiha, you know, means to advise somebody sincerely. But what is the essence of nasiha? The essence of nasiha to help you understand what this hadith really means. The essence of it is two things. At least I like to explain it like this anyway. The first is sincerity. And the second is... Maybe it's not quite the right word, but if I can explain it this way and then we'll look for a better word. Looking out for their interests. If that's not quite the right word we're looking for, but it's the best I can do right now. Looking out for their interests. I.e. doing that which is in their interest or doing that which they would love and doing that which is in their interest. That is the essence of nasiha. So when we apply this to Allah, it doesn't mean that we say, Oh Allah, I advise you to give me wealth. Or oh Allah, I advise you to give me many children. Or oh Allah, I'm offering you... Allah doesn't need your advice. The meaning of nasiha with regard to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that you are sincere in your deeds towards Him and that you do those things that Allah loves and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has uh, set out as aims and set out as uh, uh, targets for people to achieve that you know that Allah Azza wa is pleased with. So when you know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised to help the believers, then part of the nasiha towards Allah Azza wa is that you do the same. That you help the believers. Because this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said that he will do. And this is you, if you like, uh, acting uh, in accordance with what will, make, what, what will please Allah and in accordance with what Allah Azza wa Jal has uh, declared in the Qur'an or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned in the Qur'an. Again, it's, uh, it's easier to mention this sometimes in Arabic because you can use words that have a, a comprehensive meaning, whereas in English you have to be careful what you say about Allah, that you don't say something that isn't true about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But essentially what it means is it means that you act sincerely towards Allah and that you do those things that Allah loves and that will further the religion of Allah, if that makes sense. Perhaps that's the best way of putting it. 
that will further the cause of Allah and His religion. And similar to this is the ahadith about helping Allah. Yani if you help Allah, Allah will help you. Yani Allah doesn't need help. The meaning of help Allah is to help those who Allah has declared that He will help. Or to help those who Allah has commanded you to help. So essentially what you're doing is you're acting in accordance with what Allah has declared in the Qur'an and, and the aims and objectives that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has set out for you in the Qur'an. And you're acting sincerely towards Allah to assist His religion. You're acting sincerely towards Allah to assist His religion and to see His religion become victorious. That is a nasiha towards Allah. As for a nasiha towards the Qur'an, again, it is that you act in the interests of the Qur'an, if that makes sense. You act sincerely towards the Qur'an and you act in the interests of the Qur'an. So you help to promote the Qur'an, to teach the Qur'an, to spread the message of the Qur'an, to defend the Qur'an. Because imagine if this was a person, what does nasiha mean? It means you're always there for them, you're going to back them up, you're going to give them advice, you're going to help them, you're going to support them. You apply this to the Qur'an as a concept. You're going to defend the Qur'an from those people who seek to criticize it. You're going to teach the Qur'an, spread the message of the Qur'an. Essentially what you're doing is you're acting sincerely and you're behaving in the interest, in the interest of furthering the Qur'an and in the interest of defending the Qur'an. As for the Messenger then this has two components. During his life and after his death. And you can split it into three parts or three elements. One of them only applies during his life and the others apply at all times. As for the one that applies, or those that apply at all times, it is to be sincere towards the Prophet ﷺ and to defend the interests of the Prophet ﷺ and his sunnah. This applies at all times. You defend the sunnah, promote the sunnah, love the sunnah, encourage the sunnah, teach the sunnah. Uh, you, you effectively are acting in the interests of the Prophet ﷺ. And you behave sincerely towards him. I.e. that everything that you do is done that you uh, please Allah by defending the Prophet ﷺ and by honoring the Prophet ﷺ and the other things that you have been commanded to do. As for the element that is only during his life, it is to give him sincere advice. As the companions did. When it was a matter of revelation, they would not speak. But when it was a matter of personal decisions, they would advise the Prophet ﷺ and say to the Prophet ﷺ that, you think, example, the Battle of Badr, when the Prophet ﷺ stopped in a certain place, one of the companions said, O Messenger of Allah, has Allah commanded you to stop here? Or is this something that, in, in, you know, in words, something you've decided yourself? So the Prophet ﷺ indicated this was something that he himself had decided. Then the companion advised him to move to the water source so that the Muslims would control the water. This is the advice that they would give the Prophet ﷺ. As for wahi, they would not give him advice because once Allah has given the command, there is no advice to be given. But in the matters that were his decision, they would advise him military matters. Why don't we try this way? Salman al-Farisi advised the building of the trench 
or the digging of the trench in the battle of the trench, they would advise the Prophet As for the leaders of the Muslims, then this is from the major obligations of the, of the subjects towards their leaders. However, there are certain etiquettes when it comes to advising the leaders of the Muslims, and some of these are mentioned in some of the ahadith in the Sahihain and in other places. And that is that first of all, you advise the Muslim ruler in private. And it is not a sign of a person of the Sunnah to criticize them in public. And I'll give you an example why. When you advise somebody sincerely, what is your purpose? For you to look good or for them to take your advice? Clearly for them to take your advice. It's not for you to look good. Now, if I came into your house, opened your door and just started screaming, climbed on your coffee table and just started giving a khutbah against you in your house. So I walk into your house, I climb on your coffee table. Bismillah, this corrupt individual who is sitting in this house. What would you say? You wouldn't accept it. Wallahi, you wouldn't accept it. You'd throw me out. You wouldn't accept it for a minute. Nor would a ruler accept for you to stand on the mimbar and for you to, you know, essentially, what are you doing? You're not advising them. All you're doing is just making yourself look good in front of the people who are there. I'm advising and I'm saying this. This is not from the sunnah. The sunnah is that there are some people who are close to those people in authority. And they are the ones who have the ability to speak to them in private and to take them by the hand, as the Prophet ﷺ said, take them aside because nobody wants to be embarrassed in front of their, you know, their staff or in front of the people who work for them or in front of their subjects. Nobody wants to be embarrassed. Take them aside, take them by the hand and speak to them privately. Give them words of softness, words of good advice. Encourage them. Because if you do this, then bi-idhnillahi ta'ala, the situation for the whole Muslims in that area will be corrected. And this is the same application whether we're talking about the overall ruler of the Muslims or we're talking about the ruler of a particular area or the manager of a company or whatever. You know, even a manager of a company, you don't walk into the boardroom and just start laying into this guy in front of all of his staff. He's not going to listen to you. He's not going to say, subhanallah, you know, you're completely right. I am really evil. He's not going to say that. You say to him, take him by his side, have a private meeting. Say, look, you know, you're a good person. You want, we want good for you. you. You look like a person. You love Islam. You love the sunnah. Don't do this because this is going to be haram for you. And, you know, you keep that advice between you. That is how the advice works. And no doubt advice to the Muslim leaders is the responsibility of those who are close to them I mean, you and me can't just knock on someone's, you know, go down to a palace and knock on someone's door and just, you know, stroll in and sit down and say, right, I've come here to give you nasiha. No, it doesn't work like that. There are people from the scholars of Islam and from those people who Allah has given the ability to advise people. Likewise, in a big company, you can't just go up to the top floor, the penthouse, and just, you know, sort of stroll into the CEO's office, push the secretary out and sit down at the desk and start giving them nasiha. There are people who you can access and they can access and they can go until the nasiha is given, inshallah. But it also means to act in their interests as well. You know, to act in the interests of the, the Muslim rulers, to support them in doing what is good, to help them to do more good. And wallahi, this is a sign of the people of the Sunnah, as the people of the, the pious predecessors used to say, if you see a person making dua for the ruler, then know he's a person of the Sunnah. 
And if you see a person making dua against the ruler, know he is an innovator. And there's no doubt about that. Because if you want good for a people, you want good for the ruler so that he can be good for the people. And at the end of the day, you want good for the people in your workplace, you want good for the people in your organization, you want good for those people in authority because they are going to spread that good amongst many, many people. And so the sunnah in this regard, if you want, and look how the Prophet described it as a deen, the whole of the religion can be encompassed in this. For the leaders of the Muslims is that you advise them sincerely, you advise them in private, and of course you advise them. And again, you know, on the other side, you get some people who are, they don't advise. And these people, wallah, are not sincere. They only want what is with themselves. They want a position, they want power, they want whatever, and so they become yes men, who just say yes, 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 yes. And that's not the sunnah. The sunnah is, look at how Umar behaved with Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr is the supreme leader of all of the Muslims. And Umar says to Abu Bakr, that don't fight the people regarding the zakah. How can you fight the people? And you can see this is a private conversation between Umar and between Abu Bakr. And Umar is advising him. And Umar is giving him sincere advice. Not staying quiet. So the sunnah is to give the advice, but to give it in an appropriate way. Maybe not even to give it at the time the person says something, but to take them in private later on. And the further you get up the chain, in terms of, you know, it's not so bad if you're talking about your immediate boss at work, but the further you get up the chain, the more important it is that you be, bear in mind the etiquettes of giving advice. Because you want your advice to be accepted. And in all honesty, it won't be accepted by harshness, and it won't be accepted by ridiculing somebody. It will only be accepted by giving it in the way according to the sunnah. You take them by the hand, you take them in private, you talk to them in a situation where they are not going to get embarrassed in front of everybody, that you went against what they said and you criticized what they said, but you take them in private and you do advise them. And you know, subhanAllah, we in this society many times get ourselves in a situation where we can give people advice in positions of authority. You might find yourself, you know, sat in front of somebody one day who is in a position to change things and make things better in this country for other people, in a small way or a big way. Give them the advice, but give it to them in private and give it to them in a soft way and a gentle way and this is the sunnah. And as for the general Muslims, then there are two aspects to this, before we just conclude this for the break, there are two aspects to the advice for the general Muslims. And that is giving the advice and taking the advice. In terms of giving the advice, again, think how your advice can be best accepted. People have sometimes, wallah, some of the, the general Muslims have more pride in them than the leaders of the Muslims. Yani the leader will say, yes, jazakallahu khairan, yani that's a very beneficial advice. And you go and tell your brother about something and he's going to bite your head off. You know, that, that's the, subhanAllah, the situation of us, that some people have that in them. But you look at how your advice can be best given because your intention is for it to be accepted. So what are you going to do? You're going to think, am I the best person to give it? Might it be best for me to talk to his close friend and perhaps his close friend can talk to him? Maybe that advice will go down, inshallah, better with that individual. Because your intention is to act in their interests, to be good for them, to be someone who defends them, someone who helps them. And that means giving people advice. And I'll tell you one story just as we conclude. I gave a khutbah on this topic, just this hadith. And uh, someone came to me at the end of the khutbah. He said, brother, I want to give you some nasihah. He said, Jazakallahu khairan ya akhid. Tafadl, give me, you know, and this is about taking the nasihah. He said, I hated your khutbah. He said, I hated it. I said, subhanAllah, which bit? He said, all of it. 
I said this, subhanAllah. <laughs> the point is that you don't always get advice given to you in a nice way. But if you're sincere, you will take it. You will sit down and say, okay, you know, seriously, you know, give me something that I can take from this. Okay, I mean, you didn't like it, but be, be specific. What, what can I change for next time? What can I improve for next time? What can I deal with better next time? And at the end of the day, you take your nasiha, whether it comes from someone you like or someone you don't. So I think this is something that is important. Think about how you give it. Even when you're writing your feedback, think about how you give it. Because you want it to be accepted. And think about how you take your advice when it's given to you. That you are sincere in taking it as well. Bi-ibni Allahi